You are listening to the teaching podcast of the Crossridge Women Study of Mark from winter 2021. Hey, we're back with Mark Study 8. We are down to chapter 13 and 14 of Mark's Gospel. We're getting to the end. And once again, we have a lot to cover in these two chapters. Um, So we're going to get started uh, with a very difficult chapter. How about Uh, chapter 13 of Mark, one of the most difficult passages in the book of Mark, if not in the New Testament, there has been much ink spilt about it. Um, If you read five different um, commentaries on this chapter in Mark, as I did this week, you would see five different ideas about what it means. So I guess right off the bat, I just need to say that I don't hold up myself as having any secret or special knowledge. But what I am going to just offer you is um, sort of what people do see. And then um, sort of the, the freedom or the encouragement to place this chapter back into the whole of the book of Mark, what you've seen Mark doing, what you know about the historical context and what the reader would have understood and needed to understand. And then we're just going to move forward out of chapter 13. And uh, we are grateful that the Holy Spirit is faithful to teach us, uh, even in some of these difficult passages that even um, seasoned scholars still disagree about. Um And so, yeah, with that, I I just want to start by telling you, there's really, while I said, you know, five different commentators, five different interpretations, you can kind of group, for the most part, people's interpretations of chapter 13 into three sort of different sections or three common interpretations. First of all, some people think chapter 13 is all about what you might call end times. Okay, so what happens at sort of the end of time, whatever that might mean to you. Uh, Secondly, some people think this all has to do uh, with prophesying the destruction of 70 AD. uh, When Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And then the third common interpretation that it's a bit of a mix so that there are parts in it about AD 70 and there are parts in it that are speaking about Jesus return at the end of an age or the age. So like I said, different people have different ideas. And let me tell you, people I love and respect and um, have learned a lot from have different ideas than I have, and it's okay. First, we need to say this is not a gospel issue of what you believe Mark 13 is trying to say. It will not change how we view Jesus's life and death and resurrection, and it is actually okay to sit in some tension of the unknown when it comes to the Bible. I, I want us to be women who can freely say, I do not know what that means. That is a difficult passage. Um, And actually, I want to say that if there aren't passages in the Bible that make your head spin, that you admit to like having no clue what they mean, uh, that you cannot say, I I actually don't know, this, this seems difficult, then perhaps your view of God 
and his word isn't big enough, right? He said through Isaiah the prophet, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Um, What we can do, I think, is read and understand according to context, like we always try to do. We can understand his themes, Mark's themes and his messages to the OR, and, uh, and try to actually put away other frameworks. And for me, that is a lot of history growing up in the church um, with something I didn't even know till like it, within the last 10 years, something called dispensational theology and vocabulary, uh, which is a view of what happens at the end of time that is actually not um, from the Bible. It is based on some narrow interpretations of a few passages, and it is actually quite a more recent sort of theology or eschatology um, that came out of um, North America uh, in the last 60 years, within the last 70 years. And um, actually, it's, it's good to sort of look into these things and just see how much of a framework we don't even realize we are operating under. And not all of you will have that. Some of you maybe who have been around the church for your whole life maybe know about that. If you want to talk to me about that sometime, um, just shoot me an email. I'm happy to chat with you about that. But for now, we really need to get into chapter 13. So let's let's do that. Starting um, in the beginning here, the disciples, we hear them um, have this comment. They're looking out. They say, teacher, look, as he was going out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And the ESV say, what wonderful buildings. And I think uh, we we just know by now that it is human nature that we would be starry-eyed at the glory of man, which this temple really was. You can look back into um, ancient history to see just the just the magnificence of the second temple, this this temple that Herod was building. It wasn't even um, finished being built at this time yet. Um, it was magnificent, and yet Jesus condemns these great buildings. He had already condemned the institution itself. He had cursed the temple there at the fig tree, but now the buildings and the structure itself. Um, and in, in verse 3, this interesting thing happens. Mark says that Jesus is seated on the Mount of Olives across from the temple in chapter 13. And this gives us the setting for everything that is going to happen in this very difficult chapter. And the Greek for that um, phrase, across from the temple, um, actually means opposite or against. And I think Mark is using this sit- setting to say that Jesus is sitting in judgment against the temple. And what he says will stand. Certainly no stone will be left upon another. He is prophesying destruction. It will happen. And the disciples, of course, they want a sign like everybody else, right? Like the Pharisees, they want special knowledge. They say, tell us, when will these things happen? Maybe they think it signifies their, their rule with him or something, but they want to know when these things will happen. And the rest of, of chapter 13 actually is in the context of this question. That's what we have to remember, that Jesus is, everything he's saying here in chapter 13, he is answering this question of the disciples. And he is talking about when the temple will be destroyed. So in, in verse 5, we shouldn't be surprised to see that Jesus answers by not answering right? It's not uncommon. Um, He says, watch out that no one deceives you. 
basically in the face of these signs that are going to come that signify the end of the temple, growing cultural unrest, wars, tension, disaster, he says people will want to cry wolf. They will want to say it's the end of the age, it's the end of the world, the sky is falling, right? And interestingly enough, isn't that exactly what what many of these uh, traditions have used this chapter to do, right? To look for signs and then say, oh, yep, uh, it's the end of the world. It's coming, right? But Jesus says in, in verse seven, but understand this is not yet the end, right? When you see all this great cultural unrest coming, the, the temple being destroyed, know that it is not the end of the age. Rather, what does he say? It is the beginning. He uses the word birth pains. He is doing something new. Life is coming. And Jesus gives them signs that accompany this new thing God is going to do. Unrest, wars, persecution, hatred of fellow man, this defiling of the temple. And he uses this phrase again, going back to Daniel, the abomination of desolation. And we just, we need to say that we do not know for sure what this means, but it was used in other times uh, we've talked about this before regarding attacks on the temple, right? In the time of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes with the Seleucids. The important thing to understand is that there will not be just the spiritual end to the temple system. Jesus isn't just going to say, no, 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 no more sacrificing. Now it's going to be about something else. There's a physical end too. And I think I saw um, this time studying this, how important that the temple ends physically, that needed to happen. And, and Mark says, let the reader understand this. And it's really important for his reader, isn't it? Because this, this book was written, we think, some, somewhere between 64 and 68 AD. So, so these signs are happening. They are in the thick of it. The temple is about to be destroyed. They will probably see it. They will be living amongst this terror and horrific destruction. And what he wants them to do is see behind the signs. Do not fear. Remember that in all of this, God is at work. He is accomplishing his plan of redemption. They need to see and hear and understand these signs that Jesus is warning them about. Their faith is not falling apart when the temple is destroyed. No, God is at work. If they listen to these people who are clinging to this, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they will be utterly devastated. The temple has been judged. That system is no more. They are living now in this time where they have the spirit of God in them. Their bodies now are the temple and they need to remember that and rest assured that God is in control. He is sovereign and that their faith is unmoved. Yet, even though these massive stones and buildings will definitely be destroyed. And there's this wonderful encouragement in the midst of this warning, I think. He, he says, trust, trust God, trust God. He is near. Not only is he sovereign, he is near. And he has told them all these things in advance so that they can watch and be aware and not fear. Let's talk about, um, before we move on to chapter 14, a few things in this chapter that cause people to think end times. First of all, I think it's paragraph titles that do it. Um, I don't know if in your Bible, it might say right around chapter 14, the great tri tribulation. 
So that that doesn't say that in this um, in the text. Actually, that's sort of a a, a more recent or a later on addition, right? It, it this 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 idea of the great tribulation has come to mean an event because of dispensational theology. It has come to represent an exact period of time in history. But in the Greek, right here, it just means um, tribulation means trouble, it means great distress, it means pressing affliction is going to come. The other paragraph title that's in there that I think make people think it's about the end end times or something like that is uh, verse 24. It's often called the coming of the son of man. And often we think of that coming as returning or coming to earth. Um, secondly, there's a shift in language that some people see. And that's also in chapter or verse 24. It says, but in those days, up until what comes before, Jesus is saying um, these things, watch for these things, these things will happen. Then all of a sudden he says, but in those days. So some people think, uh, some very smart people think that signifies sort of a shift to a new and distinct event from the temple destruction. And that's why they think those verses there in 24 to 27 uh, might be about Jesus coming again. Okay, so that's where we get sort of this idea of this interpretation of a mix. Uh, thirdly, some of the reason people think this is end times is because of the prophetic language, right? Uh, that that could be taken literally instead of literately. So again, in chapter 24, what does it say? This idea of the sun being darkened, the moon having no light, stars falling from the sky. I mean, if that doesn't sound apocalyptic and like some sort of Will Smith end of the world movie, I don't know what does, right? That's that kind of imagery. But if you have studied the whole of the Old Testament, specifically the prophets, you'd know that this is common language in the Old Testament prophets to show judgment. Isaiah uses it. Amos uses it. Joel uses it. Ezekiel uses it. It, it is talking about God's judgment coming. I think in the Psalms, I, I see it used poetically or metaphorically just to mean this a real time of darkness. A time of, of darkness where it feels like evil is heavy and raining, that we are looking for light. Elsewhere in the Bible, and lots of you will be familiar with this, when we talk about this sort of uh, language, we're signifying a shift in heavenly places, right? This is something we might remember from Haggai. When Haggai is prophesying this new covenant, he talks about heavens, the heavens being shaken up, that something new is happening in the spiritual remnant realm. And all of those things really can apply. What is happening here as Jesus destroys the temple and initiates this new temple in his body and then eventually in his people. Uh, next, we see in, in verse 26, this idea of the Son of Man coming on the clouds or coming in the clouds. We already sort of mentioned this, but uh, as sort of a picture of uh, an end times imagery that Jesus is coming back. But I just want you to point, be pointed back to Daniel 7, right? That where this comes from in Daniel 7, it's talking about the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And there it's not used to say that the Son of Man is coming to earth, right? It says that the Son of Man is coming to the Almighty on the throne. He is ascending to his place to rule at the right hand of God. I think it's imagery of returning after great battle. 
And like we said, that's what this is. Jesus replacing the temple system with his own atoning death and doing this new thing in the new covenant. So to say, or to end it, the answer to when will these things happen is nobody knows. (laughs) Only God does. And the truth is, while you want to know because you want control, you don't need to know. Your call is to watch and always be aware that God is working. See behind the signs that he is sovereign. He is good. Your call is actually to be faithful. There's work to do in the meantime. So don't be caught sleeping. Do the kingdom work. Serve. Love. Take care of the vulnerable. Don't be distracted from the mission. To the original reader of Mark, the world is falling apart around them. There is this series of unending destructive events that they are living through. This is not new for them. Uh, And this has been a a parallel pattern throughout the whole Old Testament. We've already talked about how many times the temple has been desecrated. And you know what? It's not even going to be over in 70 AD. There is more persecution of God's people to, to come in the rest of time. There is more destructive events that happen here in the broken world. And they are to know that they can trust in God even when the systems of this world are falling apart around them. The point of Mark 13, I don't think, is to give specific details about the future. No. But rather it's to give his people assurance and hope that God is working amidst chaos. They can trust him. They can trust him. And then it's a word to us too, isn't it? Watch and remember that God is at work, even when it seems like he's not. And the earthly systems that we have put our trust in start to fall apart, like perhaps during a pandemic. I love what um, New Testament scholar Tim Gombas says about Mark 13. He says this, Wise disciples don't look at any of these series of destructive events here on earth and get distracted into worry. Getting caught up in worry about the sky falling and the world ending will always distract from the mission to make Jesus known. Instead, wise disciples are faithful to live the gospel, care for the vulnerable, and make Jesus' name known. So speaking of mission, Jesus' mission must go forward. And that is what we see in chapter 14. So Mark is slowing right down here, isn't he? Do you remember chapter one to four and those 37 uses of the word immediately from here to there to there to back across the across the lake and across back again, right? Immediately. Well, now we have slowed down so much since chapter 11 that in these last six chapters of the book, we're only going to cover a few days, about a week. Okay. And once again, we need so much more time to look at chapter 14, which we do not have. So my only choice is to take sort of this high-level approach and sort of teach this chapter, I think, through some broader themes, rather than digging into each important scene here, which I would love to do with you. Um, But the good news is this. If you've been studying along with us, you've all done this digging on your own. 
And by the Holy Spirit, I believe that the Lord has faithfully been teaching you in a much deeper way. So this is not, this is not all on me. Thanks be to God for that. So let's just look at chapter 14 and let's look at Mark's answer to the theme question. Why did Jesus come? I think we can see it using two things throughout all these little scenes in chapter 14, through context and through contrast. So first of all, through context, within the passages themselves, Mark is using particular structures. How he sets these stories together really tells us a lot about Jesus' mission here and what's important. But also the cultural context. We have to remember that this is all happening during Passover. Remember, this is the time the Jews are remembering their deliverance and victory and their freedom. And there's a real sense of nationalistic pride in the city. And that is sort of the fervor that is undergirding all of the interactions and the events that are happening here. Secondly, contrasts. So I think there's two big contrasts we see in chapter 14. I think we see the contrast between betrayal and faithfulness, and also between distraction and focus. So let's start with the very first little vignette we see here, this anointing at Bethany. And for the immediate context here, we see that Mark sandwiches this beautiful story of the woman anointing Jesus inside the context of betrayal. So in in the first two verses of chapter 14, it says the chief priests and the scribes are looking for a cunning way to arrest and kill Jesus. And then at the end of uh, verse 11, 10 and 11, it says, then Judas went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. So we don't know Judas's motivation, but in the context of Passover and in the context of what we see this woman doing for Jesus, Perhaps he's disappointed that victory is not coming in the way he assumed. Jesus some doesn't seem to be acting like the king that Judas was hoping for, right? The kind of Messiah he was expecting. Here he is hanging out at the house of a former leper and with women who are doing crazy things like pouring out expensive perfume on him. So verse four here says that some are indignant, right? Because it's wasteful what she does. Uh, and I just want to stop here before we go on any further. And, and just as we think about this idea that what she has done is wasteful. She has poured it out on Jesus' feet. There's a beautiful application um, from N.T. Wright in his commentary on Mark. And he says this, he says that these kinds of displays often leave others feeling embarrassed. I think we see that here, don't you? Pure abandoned worship of Jesus does that in us. It makes us uneasy sometimes, right? When we see other people expressing their love for Jesus in these raw ways, it it can expose our own hard heart. Sometimes it's easier for us just to shake our head at at foolish displays that we see of others' devotion or worship, rather than to face your own, perhaps, lack of intimacy. Now, I'm not saying you have to love Jesus in the the same way that others express it. That's not what I'm saying. 
But when their devotion and their expression of love makes you uneasy, I think we need to stop and reflect and ask why that is. Secondly, I think we need to be aware of this tendency to indignance, okay? That that we do tend to feel embarrassed when we see these other um, displays or different displays of others' devotion and worship or intimacy. And the reason why we need to be aware of this tendency is because it can be very divisive in the body right? In the big C church, we have seen the ways that it has, um, you know, divided people. And so we ought to be people who just be aware um, that when we see other people breaking the expensive bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet, that our human condition is going to cause us maybe to feel a little embarrassed, maybe to be indignant. Let's, Let's be cautious about that. Let's keep going. So some scold her, But Jesus commends her. A few things about this. Uh, First of all, Jesus warns them not to let their mission, caring for the poor, right, distract them from being with him. Simply said, I think our faith can often become more about doing for God rather than being with God. So let's let this passage instruct us on that. Secondly, uh, I think Mark's theme of those who should get it don't get it, and those who do get it are very surprising people, are, is really on display here, isn't it? We've seen blind people, soldiers, synagogue leaders, demoniacs, see who Jesus is and actually see with spiritual sight who he is. And here, once again, it's a woman who demonstrates true faith and true worship. And we've seen it before. The Syrophoenician woman, the woman with the blood issue, the woman um, here with, with Nard. Women are valued by the narrative of Mark, and that is countercultural to the OR and to the original audience. And today, I think it's really important that we see the value Mark places here. And quickly, here's why. Your daughters and granddaughters, your friends today, are growing up in a world that says that the Bible is sexist, okay? They're going to say that the Bible is all about men and powerful men and that there's nothing in there about women. We need to know the truth. We can see it here in Mark. And just so you don't mishear me, and think I'm saying that Mark holds women up above men, I want you to follow this theme through with me of the women right to the end, because I think you will be surprised where Mark takes it. But that's next time for now. Lean into this. When you see the Bible giving value to women and Jesus giving value to women in these countercultural ways, Know about it because you're going to have to give an account to these young women in your life who are growing up in a culture who believes and is teaching something completely different. Okay, but here, once again, verse 8. Jesus says, she has done what she could. 
And if that little phrase sounded familiar with to you, good job, because it's exactly the same phrase in the Greek that he used to talk about the widow at the end of chapter 12. She has given her life to love him. She has held nothing back. And the really beautiful thing about this is that this is exactly what Jesus will do for her, for this woman. It's exactly what he will do for us. It is what he is about to do for all of them. Even for these ones who think his death is a waste, the ones who will betray him, Jesus does count the cost of his death and he considers it worth it. He will pour it out for the sake of these who do not think he's worth it. And this is this huge contrast set up for chapter 14, that disciples will betray him and Jesus will be faithful. And it starts to come into view here in this next scene. Verse 12, we see the Passover. And there's this repetition that Mark uses in the immediate context. He uses this word prepare three times in the first few verses. And there's an irony here because these preparations that Mark keeps talking about seem a little last minute. Like it's the day of Passover and they are preparing for it. Okay, so think about this in your life. What's the most important day, the most important meal? that you, you need to have all year. I don't know. Maybe it's Christmas. Maybe it's Easter or something like that. Maybe it's something else. But imagine you're running to the store to get your turkey on Christmas Day, right? It's not going to happen. And yet, this is what we see. And I think it just parallels Jesus coming in to Jerusalem and, and finding that donkey, right? The authority of Jesus is shown in these impossible little directions that come true. The city is full, four times as full as it usually would be because of the Passover feast. And yet they're supposed to look for a man carrying a jar of water. And they find him. And they end up in in this room um, that has been prepared. And they have this last supper. And what we need to remember here is that this is not just Jesus having his last supper or his last Passover. It is, in effect, the very last Passover meal. Okay? The Jewish people have been celebrating this since the time of the Exodus, when it was instituted in Exodus 12. And in this moment, Jesus is replacing this very important historic feast with his death. And he is instead substituting this feast centered on him, on his body. He is the center of this feast. And I think it reminds us that the exodus out of Egypt was actually preparation for Jesus's deliverance on a cross. The exodus was just a shadow of this true freedom that was to come. Jesus' death is actually the substance. That is the true victory that all of Israel has been waiting for and celebrating even from the time of Exodus. And the table is this beautiful sign of love and invitation. Um, and, and this is what we see here. It's Jesus's table. He's the bread that feeds. It's his death that feeds us. And the table is one of grace. 
it is one death for many. In Exodus 24, we see the first of these sort of meals on Mount Sinai about the covenant. It was the first covenant meal there. And it says in Exodus 24 that Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people, on a few, on just Israel, to ratify that first covenant. But here, Jesus says the blood is poured out for many. And we are not surprised because Mark has already told us that there is enough for all right? He's already awakened our hearts to that through the stories of the feeding of the 5,000. There is enough bread for all. So let's move on. Verse 26, here's the scene of the garden. We see evidence of Jesus' words that Judas will betray, that Peter will deny, that all will fall away and the sheep will be scattered. Sometimes I think we hear that word fall away and it sounds like what we use it to mean sort of like leave the faith. I think it's important to know here that it means stumble, trip, or sort of lose focus to follow. It's like distraction. Okay. And I think chapter 13 helps us to see that all of this in chapter 14 is a picture of distraction. It is the inability of the disciples to act like disciples and to follow. Um, it's, it's all due to distraction. Remember how he was saying, be alert, be alert, be alert. And what do they do? They are falling asleep. While Jesus is faithful, they will betray. While he remains focused on his mission, they will be distracted. And there's this really strange detail about the young man. I just want to make mention of this. Do you know that scholars think this, this young guy who ran away and sort of lost his linen cloth is maybe Mark? Um, we don't know. But I, I think the picture in it is really important parallel to another moment of naked shame in another garden, right? That sin causes us to fall away. That sin causes the shame that leads to falling away, to tripping and stumbling and distraction and the inability to follow. And the disciples here are distracted once again by this greatness metric of the kingdom of man, I think. And as I studied it this, this time, I saw the garden of, uh, of Gethsemane here with Jesus as sort of this image of kingdom battle. You know, here's Jesus struggling to avoid temptation, to abandon his mission, and he's using his kingdom weapon, prayer. And he asks his friends three times to battle with them, but they are distracted by their flesh. They're too tired to be alert. And the disciples, and especially Peter, they are struggling to abandon the mission of selfish greatness and embrace Jesus's mission of death. They just can't get their minds around it. It's too hard. And so Peter uses his weapon of the kingdom of man. He uses a sword. And then later on, he uses another weapon that the Sanhedrin is using on the inside. He uses false testimony to try to battle, you know, the, his flesh here. And we'll talk more about that in a minute when we move on to this next scene. Um, because interestingly enough, well, while Peter is out in the courtyard wielding this weapon of false testimony and inside the Sanhedrin is wielding the same weapon inside there, Jesus is actually wielding truth. And we have this beautiful declaration of who he is. 
But let's just let's just bring it back to us for a second here. How easy it is to be distracted. How easy it is to to fall asleep, to let our flesh distract us. But not Jesus. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says this, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. That's what he's doing right here. To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Interestingly, Jesus being heard doesn't mean he was delivered from death, does it? That's interesting and enough. Oh, so much to say. Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what? He suffered. Okay, let's just say this one thing. There's too much to say here, but let's say one thing. Let us not be so distracted by our suffering that we forget to let it lead us into obedience. Okay, we got to keep moving. This is awful. (laughs) While they are distracted, while the disciples are distracted, Jesus is not. He says it's necessary that the scriptures are fulfilled, that the law itself is fulfilled, that it brings about true and lasting atonement to reconcile man to God. So he faithfully and quietly submits to the only way forward for the kingdom to come. And here we get in verse 53 to the Sanhedrin. We're almost finished here. What Jesus has predicted of the temple must naturally happen to him also. Destruction at the hands of pagan enemies. And the immediate context is this secret, corrupt trial at night. Mark says it's full of false testimony. And there's this contrast of those who should recognize their Messiah, all the leaders of of the Jewish people, and even the temple servants themselves, you know, as, as God. Jesus is God. And so they are the temple servants. They are actually his servants. And yet we see this irony that they are slapping him. And there's the contrast of false testimony with truth. When asked if he's the Messiah, Jesus says, I am. And listen, he is not just agreeing that he is who they think he is, because he's not. He's not what they think the Messiah is, some king who will rule over Rome, who will bring the Jewish people sovereignty. Now, here's what he's saying. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, who led your forefathers out of Egypt, who delivered them from slavery, initiated the first Passover and made them a people unto myself by giving them the law and the temple. And now you will see that age come to an end as I defeat the enemy of sin in the way the temple failed to do. The Son of Man will come on the clouds and be found seated at the right hand of power, right with the Almighty on the throne. Basically, Jesus says, I will do what I set out to do from the beginning. (laughs) And he will do it. Thanks be to God, he will do it. In spite of the the disciples' inability and the Jewish leaders' inability and our inability and all our distraction, he will do it. He did do it for them and for us. 
Chapter 15 and 16 will continue this march to faithfulness. And now instead of being betrayed by his friends, you know, he will also be betrayed by his enemies as he foretold. But here we are at the end of chapter 14. We have a bit of reflection to do. So let's, let's do it through a few questions. Friends, let's talk about our own propensity towards distraction for a minute. You know, I, I have a five-month-old puppy. And if there isn't a better picture of distraction, I, I don't know. Because if anybody has ever taken a five-month-old puppy for a walk during bunny season in the park... Um, you know about real distraction, how you can just be thinking you are going one direction and immediately you are just so easily distracted. And, you know, throughout this book of Mark, I think we've seen the disciples themselves distracted by all sorts of things, fear, illusions of power and knowledge. They've been distracted by quests for greatness, by even a scarcity mindset. And I think their distraction is made more obvious when we see Jesus' focus on who he is and what he is there to do. So many things distract him from the, them from the truth of, of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And you know what? I just need to say, it's not so different with us. And I'm sure you agree. We are distracted by many of the same things even that the disciples were distracted by. And so we miss the truth of who Jesus is and therefore who we are. We can't follow when we're distracted. We will be off track in a second. And the opposite of distraction is what Jesus talks to his disciples about in John 15. It's abiding. So let's consider today, what is it that is distracting us from following Jesus into the kingdom these days? Are we distracted by the series of destructive events going on around us? You know, our world too seems to be seriously falling apart, doesn't it? Let's get absolutely practical for a second. This pandemic we are living in offers so many different ways to be distracted right now. Fear, politics, disagreements with our brothers and sisters over many and every aspect of it. Is it possible that even COVID has distracted us from our relationship with Jesus? with faithfulness to his kingdom? Have we fallen asleep to the truth and betrayed him, neglected loving our neighbor and loving God and walking in unity and peace? Is it possible that there are ways we have stopped trusting in his sovereignty and goodness because we are so distracted and possibly even deceived into thinking that these events are the end. Rather than another beginning where God is able to work something new in our world or in us, 
Would you take some time to really think about that this week? In general, what is it threatening to distract you from following? And then finally, how will you abide? What do you need to do this week in order to refocus? 